Let's open our Bibles to the book of Galatians. That's where we'll be for seven weeks. It'll take us a long time this morning to even get there because there's some work that needs to be done. Martin Luther said the book of Galatians was his wife, and it was the impetus for the Reformation. Some people think it's the greatest letter in the entire New Testament. It's a book of freedom and grace, and uh, I believe God's going to do great things. So let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord, you oversee all that we do here. You're the great shepherd. You're the one leading us. Lord, we're just following And Lord, we want to be the expression of your people in Delaware County, Lord. We don't want to be what some church is in another state or region. We just want to take the gifts that are available and the talents here and bloom where we're planted. Lord, you've given us this piece of property, 20-some acres. You've given us influence through radio and some other things, Lord. And Lord, we want to preach the gospel here. Lord, we want to see men and women saved, children growing up in the faith. We want to see vibrancy and authenticity. And Lord, as we come through the book of Galatians, Lord, I, I pray that, that our hearts would expand, that we would understand grace and liberty, what freedom's all about, not only in our lives, but this great country you've put us in. So Lord, give us ears to hear. Let us hear beyond what I'm saying, the still small voice of your spirit. And uh, we're so thankful to be in your presence as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start this morning with two questions. I always tell you church questions are easy so you can relax a little bit. Uh, The first question is, what's the one day a year where Americans set aside to reflect on their lives and vow to make wholesale changes for the better? Lose some weight, save a little more money, be a better mom and dad. What's that universal day? Yeah, New Year's Day. That was easy. Second question is a little more problematic. What's the day where those resolutions usually fall by the wayside? Yeah, a lot of people are saying January 2nd, man. That's not a good thing. We'll be a little more generous. Maybe February 1st, March 1st, right? Which leads to two more questions. Why do we have this innate sense that there's a better life out there to be lived? You know, what drives us to want to change and experience life in a better form? That's question number one. And the second question is, if there's a better life out there and we're making resolutions or vows to live that life, why do we fail so miserably? Let's go with question number one. Why do we have an inner drive that there's a better life and we need to make necessary changes? Well, I think there's one reason and one reason only. Purpose. You think about that word, purpose. God created us and hardwired us, I believe, every human being on this planet, with certain dreams, desires, longing, and aspirations to live lives that matter. We're not just here to eat, drink, and be merry. We want to add value. We want to make a difference. Most of us want to leave the planet a better place than we found it. And there's a reason for this. The God of heaven, when he created the world, book of Genesis, six days, on the six days when he created the man and the woman, this couple, He gave them this command. It was positive. It wasn't negative. The the negative command was don't eat of the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was a positive command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and get this, subdue it. I looked up that word subdue in the dictionary. It means to gain control of, to conquer, to bring under, to cultivate. God, who created the world and took this beautiful canvas, left the world undone, if you can imagine that. It was left to Adam and Eve 
to name the animals, till the garden, raise families, build cities. Why? Because God as the creator made us in his image. He put gifts and talents in every one of us, artistic talents, talents in business and raising families. And God said, you finish the canvas. And we serve a God who longs to partner with us. If you look at our world today and look at all the social ills, all the poverty and suicide and drug use and divorce and, and everything we see in the newspapers and talk about around tables, you can reduce all of that trouble to one word, a lack of purpose. Jay Mabira, who was with us last week from the slum of the Mathari slum in Kenya, spoke about this, how there's a phrase, you, you're born in Mathari, you live in Mathari, you die in Mathari. That means you have no hope. And when there's a lack of purpose, it leads to a lack of hope and brings poverty and crime and all these social ills. There was a technique used in World War II POW camps to break the spirit of prisoners. What they would do is they would give these prisoners a shovel and a guinea sack. And they would tell them to build a large hole. And for weeks, teams of men would dig a, dig a large hole, drag all the dirt about 20 yards away, and pile it up. When that work was done, the next command was take all the dirt, put it in the guinea sack, and fill the hole you just dug. Sounds simple, but it would crack men. They would just lose their minds. Because even in a POW camp, the idea of digging a hole at least gave them a purpose, something to look forward to. But when they made them fill the hole, it was meaningless and lacked purpose. Now, you don't have to be in a slum of Nairobi or in a POW camp to lack purpose. God put in the Old Testament a book every Christian should read, every person on the planet should read. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. It was written by King Solomon, the son of David, a king in Israel, the wisest man who ever lived, the wealthiest man. This man was so wealthy, powerful, he had concubines, that it was like taking every celebrity you know, from rock and roll to to the NBA, to the NFL, to movies, and putting them all together. He had everything that they had, power and fame, everything, exploits. And Solomon, in this book, writes about his exploits. He writes about all his endeavors and all his sexual appetites and, and everything he did, listen, under the sun. That means sans God, under the sun. And you know what he said? It was all vanity had no purpose. It was meaningless. He used a metaphor. He said it was like chasing after the wind. And I just want to change his metaphor. It'll say the same thing. Solomon said in some ways it's like moving dirt piles from here to there. Jesus said you could be someone who gains the whole world and lose your own soul. Now Solomon came to his senses and he looked at life under heaven and then you know what he said here's the sum of the matter fear God and keep his commandments this is man's all it's the only way to find meaning and purpose in life now after the devastation of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 pain was introduced to our world and Jesus said in this world you will have pain the word tribulation you're going to suffer a little bit women are going to have pain delivering children men are going to have pain going to work it's going to be pain spread all around but it didn't change God's ideal. He told Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In Psalm 1, we see what I think is the greatest scripture about fruitfulness in our lives. And many scholars believe Psalm 1 
is the totality of all the psaltery. Psalm 1 begins with what the blessed man doesn't do. He's not in the path of sinners or the scornful. Then it talks about what he does do. His delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates day and night. And then here's the result. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither. And get this, everything he does prospers. The ungodly are not so. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. In other words, they can have all the success in the world and it's like one day it'll just all dissolve. I was reading Psalm 1 this week and a phrase just struck out at me. That we could be fruitful in every season. See, it's one thing to look around in a spring or the summer season that you're in and say, wow, there's a lot of fruit on the tree. But I believe as a Christian, you can go through an autumn season where there's a lot of change and you don't understand what God's doing. You can go through the winter experience of your life and still have fruit that remains. We had longtime friends, 25 years, 20 years in this church, and the wife went through a bout with cancer and hadn't seen her in a while. And I was preaching a few weeks ago and I saw her in a distance and ran up to her after the service and we hugged. And I said, oh, you look great. And I said, how are you doing? She said, well, you know, I went through chemotherapy and all that. And she said, God revealed something to me. She said, when I was going through chemotherapy, I was sleeping a lot. And one day God revealed something to me. She said, remember when your children were little, how when they slept, you would look at them? Just look at their freckles and, and look at their bodies and just be amazed that God has given you these children. She said, God revealed to me when I was sleeping 20 hours a day from chemotherapy that he was pleased and that he was looking at me as I was sleeping. And I'm like, wow, that, that's somebody bearing fruit in the winter of their lives, in a winter season. The psalmist said, blessed is the man. A blessed man. And I think you all know that word is translated what? Happy. Happy. Joyful. Do you know God wants us to be happy? Sometimes we think, oh, that's what these people that are preaching another gospel tell us. We can be happy. No, it says right here, blessed is the man or the beatitudes, the blessings. There's an idea of joy and happiness. Now, to understand it, I want to take you back to your childhood. Unless you had a horrific childhood... This might not apply to you. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, and it applied to me. So I thought back to my childhood, and I grew up in the, in the city, on the fringes of the city in the suburbs. So we had tons of kids in my neighborhood. We, we, we lived in twins and row homes, and there were just people abounding. And as a child, the one thing I could never come to grips with is that I was happy, and I didn't understand why adults were so grumpy. Anybody feel that way? You know, I just woke up every day happy. Like, where are we going to play ball? Where are we going to eat? Like, like, life was happy for me. And when Dr. J came to the Philadelphia 76ers, I really got into basketball. I was a baseball, football player, and he really whet my appetite for basketball. My grandfather put a hoop on our telephone pole. And I would play day and night, shovel snow, all the stories you hear from your parents. That was me. I was relentless just playing. My next-door neighbor, this older woman, Whenever she would see me out on my court, she would get in her car, literally, and back up under my hoop. 
Now that worked out well. I didn't make the MBA, so I'm here, and that's a good thing. But, but I used to look at her and think, how does, how does a little kid get that, that mean, right? How do you turn out mean like that? Around the corner was a lady, that, and everybody had this, right, unless you grew up in affluence or the suburbs. In the city, there was like one lady who was the wicked witch of the West in your neighborhood, right? Do you all have that? I mean, just mean. Kids would like take the other route not to go near her house. It was just, it was just terrible. Now, it was a little more problematic for me because it was my grandmother, of all people. <laughs> and I used to think, how did she get so mean? I had three older sisters who used to just talk about all their problems to my mom. They're in the dumps, they're in the pits, and I was happy. I'm thinking, why do they have all these problems? That's why Jesus said we have to become like little children because life has a way of making us cynical and hard. The Bible says there's this condition of happiness and joy and fruitfulness that's available. And because it's available, we ache for it. This is why we want to change. Because there's a life in God available for you and me to live this way. We long for it. Now, one day in heaven, it'll be complete. But the Bible says it's available now outside of circumstances. By the way, this is why we're disappointed so often. Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. A wretched man that I am. I don't know about you, but, but I mean, I love my relationship with God, but I'm so disappointed I'm not closer. You know, I sin less now than ever, but I'm still disappointed at how much I still do sin, and I'm disappointed at how much I sin, and it doesn't bother me. I'm disappointed by, by all that's going on in our world, and sometimes I'm worrying what time is the game on tonight, just to be honest. My callousness, the shadow mission that resides in me to do other things than what God has called me to do. When Jesus came along, many of the themes of his parables were about fruit production. Talents given the sum, rewards expected, producing 30, 60, and 100, sowing and reaping. His most famous teaching is John 15, where he said, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Why? That we might bear more fruit. The hardest thing to convince Christians is that God wants you to produce fruit. Why? Because it's going to bring joy to you and to him. Everyone, in their dying breath, wants to look around and say, I mattered. I made a difference. I added value. Carly Fiorina was the former CEO of HP. She was the first woman CEO of a Fortune 50 company. And her mother used to say, Carly, life is God's gift to you, but what you do with your life is your gift to God. And I believe that. The psalmist said here in context that we could live lives that are fruitful and overflow to others. Low-hanging fruit for others to take part of. So if God wants us to live fruitful lives and we want to live fruitful lives, why do we come so short? And I believe it's because we don't understand the path to fruitfulness. The path to fruitfulness is the gospel. And some of you are going to be let down by that because you're looking for the secret sauce, right? What's the secret sauce to the fruitful life? Well, the secret sauce is the gospel. 
The gospel, we think, is what we preach to the unsaved. Or we think it's what the elementary elements of Christianity are, the ABCs. Or it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the farthest thing from what the gospel is. The gospel is the ion galleon. It's when Jesus started his ministry, and you can find this many times and underline it. He said he went about preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus went around saying, this is the good news. This is the gospel that the kingdom of God has finally arrived on the planet. John Ortberg in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, we have copies in the back, said Jesus' announcement of the gospel is simply the announcement of the existence and availability of another dimension of existence, another world. The kingdom of God has come near. The good news, the word we translate gospel, is that this fallen world is not the whole story. There's another realm. It's as real as the chair I'm sitting in, the book you're reading. These words of Jesus announced a great turn in the history of the world. The lid is off the terrarium. Anytime someone heard Jesus say them, really heard them, these words would bring a catch of the breath, a beating and uplifting of the heart, sometimes tears, and they still do. The good news, especially in this world, is that the kingdom of God is closer than you think. It's available to ordinary men and women. It's available to people who have never thought of themselves as religious or spiritual. It's available to you. You can live in it now. This means in part that your story is the story of transformation. You will not always be what you are now. The day is coming when you will be something incomparably better. And it was the good news that allowed a woman who had seven demons to live a life of freedom, to anoint Jesus for his burial. It was the gospel that allowed a tax collector who was stingy to become generous and give half of his good to the poor. It was the gospel that allowed a woman who had five husbands and she was living in infidelity to go and live a life of sexual purity and to be an evangelist among the Samaritans. It was the gospel that allowed the thief to be the first one in the paradise. It was the gospel that allowed a prominent wealthy Pharisee who was hiding away secretly following Jesus to give his unused tomb to the Savior of the world that would be visited by millions all the way unto our day. It was the gospel that allowed a violent, insolent Christ killing, rejecting Pharisee named Paul to be the greatest evangelist and apostle in the world. It's the gospel that allows you and me, black and white, bond and free, to be here this morning. That's the gospel. And it transfers to every nation, every tribe on the face of the earth. You can preach it anywhere. It's the power to transform. Now, when you understand that, you'll understand Galatians. Because Paul writes this letter to a church. And in chapter 1, verse 6, this is what he says. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul is so profoundly amazed that anyone would leave this gospel, he says this. He said, but even if we or an angel from heaven, and by the way, an angel from heaven is the impetus of starting two religions, and we'll talk about that as we go through the series, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I say now, if anyone preaches another gospel to you, what you have not received, let him be accursed. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that you're now going to be transformed or made perfect in the flesh? We're going to unpack this whole idea in the next six weeks. The Galatians were being tempted to add Judaism and the law to Christ, ideas of Greek thinkers to Christ. It's never just an, an aberration. It's always a mixture, see? And Paul's like, what, what? There has to be a spell over you. Why would you ever leave the gospel in all its purity? And friends, we live in a day where the gospel is highly perverted, where we're adding every mixture under the sun. And Paul's saying the sad thing is the gospel is the only thing that saves and it's the only thing that transforms. A couple more pages over. This is the highlight of the book, Galatians 5. Verse 1, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't move dirt piles from here to there again. Paul's saying, that's religion. You were released from that. Why would you ever go back? Verse 15. I say then, walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lust against the spirit, the, lust, uh, the spirit against the flesh, and they're contrary. Now, this is fascinating. In verses 19 to 26, he's going to give us the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. Now, the works of the flesh there, you could read them. I read the New King James. Uh, I chose to read the message for this because the message is a loose paraphrase of what the translators gave us, but in an in, in, in embodiment of English that will make us remember who we were. Listen to this. This is the works of the flesh. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfied once. A brutal temper. An impotence to love or be loved. Divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. Anybody lived that life in the past? Yeah. All who practice this will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, we all fall back into that, but you understand what it's saying? This is who you were, who you were before Christ, driven by the flesh. And now there is this life available in the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Get this. Against such, against such, there is no law. If you're in Christ, there is no law. You're free. Let me frame it up this way. I know you all can't see this. We'll do the best we can. Picture your life as a circle. Now, we know 
in the world of physics that everything left to itself, a closed-loop system, moves towards decay. Lack of energy, whatever you want to call it. That's why every man in here has a Home Depot card, right? Your home decays all during the week and you've got to fix it. So everything's moving towards disrepair, and we call that what? The second law of thermodynamics, all right? It's a proven law. It's the same thing in our lives. Our lives don't go north naturally. They go south. We don't naturally eat better. We want to eat cheesesteaks and hoagies, right? That's the way it goes, all right? So in a closed-loop system, if this is inevitable, how do you break this? Well, you break it by making it an open-loop system, adding new energy and new intelligence. So this is what the life of a Christian looks like. The gospel means conversion. Conversion is where God comes into your life. So now there's new energy, there's a new source. God's in your life. There's a discharge of old things, and you get in the flow of the Spirit. See? Religion says, through the sheer act of your will, you're going to please God. That's what it says. Religion is like moving dirt piles from here to there. Now, Listen, people can change without God. Some people keep New Year's resolutions. They quit smoking. They lose 100 pounds. How do they do it? By brute force and sheer act of their will. We are spirit, soul, and body. Our soul is our mind, will, and our emotions. Through the act of one part of who you are, your will, you can change. But when God comes into your life, there can be wholesale change. And the word of God flowing through us and we get into the flow of the spirit. We're going to unpack this as we go on through the rest of the book of Galatians. Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about this fascinating idea, this concept that when we understand the gospel, that at conversion there's an old you, the old man, and there's a new you, the new man. The old man walked in the flesh, right? The new man walks by the spirit. Now, watch this. I thought of an illustration to frame this up for you. The old man or the old you are old patterns and proclivities that were part of your experience. Family of origin patterns, relational patterns, addictive patterns, bad choices, all those things wrapped up in one. Now that you're a new creation, you can walk in the flow of the Spirit, God's love and joy and peace. The problem is the old proclivities are still there. Here's the example I want to give you. When I grew up, we had telephones, right? You picked it up. Outside, there was a telephone pole with wires. Today, we have a new name for the telephone. It's called a landline, right? Because most of us don't have them anymore. What we have is a new pattern. This thing in our pocket where we push a button and we can talk to anybody in the world. The problem is, landlines are still there. They can still be engaged. I can pick up a landline, make a call, and it works. So this is the life of a Christian. You are new in Christ. In the flow of the Spirit, you can be transformed. You can be something totally different than you were. But then every once in a while, you can engage landlines. The old patterns and the old proclivities will come back. So how do we change this? Henry Cloud's written a fascinating book 
called Never Go Back. He's the author of Boundaries. He's a psychologist, a PhD. He's got a, uh, a divinity degree. He loves the church. He's one of the smartest men on the planet, I believe, very down to earth. And in his book, Never Go Back, he studied what he called successful people, what we would call fruitful people in the church, and then people who struggled. And his findings are amazing. He found out that both groups had virtually the same IQ, same talent, same giftedness. You know what the differentiation was? He found out that the fruitful group would see a pattern in their lives that was painful. They would learn the lesson and then listen. Never go back to the old way. Never go back. You know there's a Bible term for never going back? Anybody know what it is? To repent. To repent. When you became a Christian, you said, God, I'm a sinner. I'm in, re- I'm in religion. I need a Savior. And I'm never going back to the way I lived in Galatians. Outburst of anger and all those things. God created me a new heart, and a new mind, and a new spirit. Zacchaeus, when he came down and went to his house with Jesus, said, I'm giving half my money to the poor. When John was baptizing, they said, John, what must we do? He said, if you have two shirts, give one away. If someone says go one mile, go two. Not because we're earning God's favor, but because if that deep work was done within us, that would be the outflowing of it. Spirit has now allowed us new patterns and new thinking. The Bible says don't become entangled again with the unfruitful works of darkness. Next week we're going to talk about legalism, the unfruitful legacy of legalism. Legalism has failed in the only thing it's ever tried to do, and that's make people holy. Failed miserably. So what's it going to take for us to live fruitful lives? It always comes down to these three. The word of God's going to have to be a big part of who we are. The new intelligence is the word of God. Renewed minds and walking in the things of God. Having a biblical worldview. I don't know how you're going to infuse yourself with the Bible. If you don't like reading, you can get the Bible on tape. There's a million ways today. But if you don't infuse yourself with biblical understanding... You're going to be tossed to and fro by what the world says and what God says, and you'll never get straight. Second thing you need to do is read great books. A lot of people ask me, Pastor Bob, what are you reading? What are you reading? And what I'm reading, or what I've read this summer is out in the atrium. And uh, these books are eclectic because I didn't choose them, they chose me. I read Dinesh D'Souza's book, America, because I love Dinesh, and then I fell in love with America again. Because he presented as an Indian American, not a great country, but an idea birthed in the gospel. Then I read Ben Carson's book, One Nation, because I love Ben Carson, an African-American surgeon who reminded me again why America was great. I came in one day and there was a signed copy of Boomerang on my desk by its author. An Australian man who took an outside look like the Tocqueville did back in the 1800s at what made America great, and again reminded me that a big part of it was the gospel. My son got me a book called Closer, the story of Manny, 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 yeah, yeah, the closer for the Yankees, all right, yes, and uh, 
I let it sit for a while and thought, oh, I'm not a real Yankees fan. And then I read it and I was reminded by this Panamanian. What a great country we live in. So that was just my reading outside of what I'm supposed to read for church and everything else. And when I read these things, I'm jumping out of my skin to be more fruitful. Because I'm looking at their fruitful lives. And then finally, you're going to have to hang around with God's people. You're going to have to live in community. But where I want us to start this morning in this series, and it's going to be a fabulous series. I want to take a few minutes right now, and I think this will spill over into your week and in the weeks to come. And I want you to look at your life, and I want you to examine with God, what are the things that God's going to prune that you might produce more fruit? For some of you, you haven't even been converted. Maybe you've been hanging around Calvary. Maybe you came here at Sizzling Summer. You haven't even crossed the line to faith. You haven't even believed the gospel yet. Maybe that'll happen in this series. Maybe it'll happen today. You're one prayer away. For the rest of us, I want us to examine the paths and the patterns that are stopping us from living the fruitful lives God intended. To make it plain, what do we have to repent of this morning? What's the area in life, relational, internal, spiritual, where you're saying, God, the axe is going to be laid to the, to the root of the tree, and I'm never going back. We have a saying in the world that goes like this, doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results is insanity. Insanity. Some of your lives are unfruitful because you're doing the same things over and over, expecting different results. And the gospel through freedom and grace has allowed you to repent and say, God, I will never go through that door again. I'll end that relationship. I'll restore this relationship. I'll make this right. I'll finally deal with that. So I can bear the fruit you've always intended me to bear. The Bible says that godly sorrow leads to repentance, but a fool, a fool returns to his folly. A fool keeps doing things over and over and over, expecting different results. When I came back in January from my sickness of four months, I sat down with our leadership team, and I said, guys, I take full responsibility for what happened to me. I'm not blaming anyone, but I'll tell you this. I will fight like a dog that will never do things the way we've done them before. This is a new day and a new chapter, and we're not going back. And we're going to do things differently. I don't care what it takes. You can say that in your marriage, with your children, in your career, whatever you're doing. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. I'll close with this. Joshua was the most courageous man in all the scriptures, in my opinion. And he said something we hang on all our doors, and I have, it's on a rock at my house. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But we never read the verses ahead of it. Joshua said, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, then choose who you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers 
or the God of Israel, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. See, a mixture doesn't work. Mixture is what led the Laodicean church to be vomit out of Jesus' mouth. Choose this day. The most fruitful, greatest life, Solomon said. Here, the sum of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the end of all man. When you come to the end of your life, you'll have been through some valleys and you'll have a few chinks in your armor and you might even be limping. But you'll be like Paul. You'll say, I fought the good fight of faith. He didn't say, I danced the great fight of, the great dance of faith. I fought a good fight. And I finished fruitful to the end. Father, I pray for everyone in this room. Lord, we have seven weeks to unpack the book of Galatians. A book of freedom and grace and transformation. Lord, you want us to live fruitful lives. We want to live fruitful lives. Lord, don't let entropy and the flesh and the second law of thermodynamics and laziness and all those other things stop us from being all we can be in you. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this community. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that these words wouldn't fall to the ground and they would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold in Jesus' name. Amen.